Hello, good people. It's great to be back with you. Today we are going to be talking about the beginning of the first chapter of Joseph Ratzinger's Introduction to Christianity. Joseph Ratzinger begins his first chapter by recounting a story told by Kierkegaard. The story goes like this. There is a circus in Denmark and the circus is getting ready to put on a performance. While they are getting ready, there is an accident and a fire breaks out in the circus. The manager of the circus sends a clown who is already dressed in his makeup and costume to a nearby town to get help to put out the fire. The clown goes to the town and begins to warn the villagers that the fire has broken out and that they need to come and help put out the fire of the circus. The people just laugh at him. They think that what he is doing is a creative advertisement for the circus. The more he cries and begs and pleads for them and begins to warn them that if they do not help, the fire will come across the fields and engulf their town. The more he does that, the more they laugh and consider him to be putting on an excellent performance. Finally, that is what happens. The fire spreads, the circus is destroyed, and so is the village. There is an author named Harvey Cox who wrote a book called The Secular City, and he recounts the story of Kierkegaard in his book and says that that story is actually analogous to the situation of a modern theologian. Modern theologian is seen to be talking about something that people find to be amusing. Ratzinger says, quote, they are already familiar with what he is talking about and know that he is just giving a performance that has little or nothing to do with reality, unquote. So see, people listen to the theologian happily, but they don't take him seriously. Ratzinger says that as far as this analogy goes, there's an element of truth in it, but that it is still somewhat of a simplification. Ratzinger goes on to say, for after all, it makes it seem as if the clown, or in other words, the theologian, is a man possessed of full knowledge who arrives with a perfectly clear message to the villagers to whom he hastens. In other words, those outside the faith are conversely the completely ignorant who only have to be told something of which they are completely unaware. The clown then need only take off his costume and his makeup and everything will be all right, unquote. Ratzinger says that this presumes that the problem is really an outside thing. It's the dress that Christianity is in that makes people unable to accept it. That if Christianity could be demythologized, that would solve the problem. It's just a matter of taking off the makeup and changing clothes. But Ratzinger goes on to question, quote, is a change of intellectual costume sufficient to make people run cheerfully up and help to put out the fire that according to theology exists and is a danger to all of us? I may say that in fact the plain and unadorned theology in modern dress appearing in many places today makes this hope look rather naive, unquote. In other words, what Ratzinger is saying here is that this has been tried. It was already the theological project of the 20th century to demythologize Christianity, to put it in plain dress of today. But it didn't work. 
it failed to convey the Christian message in that way. But something deeper is needed. It's not just a matter of the externals, but rather that the theologian himself, or in our terms, since we're reading this book together, every Christian has to do self-critical introspection. Quote, in the strangeness of theology's aims to the men of our time, he who takes his calling seriously will clearly recognize not only the difficulty of the task of interpretation, but also the insecurity of his own faith, the oppressive power of unbelief in the midst of his own will to believe, unquote. So Ratzinger is saying that there's something going on inside of us, inside of us Christians, inside of theologians, inside of anyone who tries to convey the Christian faith to another. That is, that is deeper than merely the way that we try to convey the faith. Ratzinger goes on to say, quote, he has to understand that his own situation is by no means so different from that of others as he may have thought at the start. He will become aware that on both sides, the same forces are at work, albeit in different ways. To illustrate this now, Ratzinger goes into the story of St. Teresa, the little flower, sometimes called St. Therese. St. Therese is a very popular saint. She was born at the, um, near the end of the 19th century to very devout parents in France. Um, in fact, she had uh, two older sisters who were nuns, and she herself joined a Carmelite convent at the age of 15. She died at age 24 from tuberculosis, and during her illness, she wrote a spiritual autobiography called The Story of a Soul, which is one of the great classics of spirituality of the 20th century. However, her story initially was sanitized by the sisters in her convent who published it. And I remember reading the story of a soul when, um, oh, actually before I even became Catholic, and I remember thinking, well, I don't know if I could really relate to this goody two-shoes saint, but it turns out that uh, more, a more complete story of her spiritual journey was later on made public. And she had a great number of very serious struggles. In fact, one of the things that she confessed is that during her time when she was ill, she experienced a very severe temptation to atheism. And of this, Ratzinger says, quote, her mind is beset by every possible argument against the faith. The sense of believing seems to have vanished. In other words, in what is apparently a flawlessly interlocking world, someone here suddenly catches a glimpse of the abyss lurking, even for her, under the firm structure of the supporting conventions." Unquote. For St. Therese, it was not just a matter of this or that doctrinal detail. It wasn't a matter of questioning, you know, the doctrine of the assumption or um, questioning the proper way to go to confession or some minor detail like that. It was instead, as Ratzinger says, what is at stake is the whole structure. It is a question of all or nothing. That is the only remaining alternative. Nowhere does there seem anything to cling to in this sudden fall. Where everyone looks, only the bottomless abyss of nothingness can be seen. After describing this situation, of St. Therese and her struggles, 
as she was dying of tuberculosis and her temptations to atheism, Joseph Ratzinger goes on to discuss another story, and that is a story by the Catholic playwright Paul Claudel called Solier de Satin. This story, um, or this play, opens up with a Jesuit missionary. Now, the Jesuit missionary is actually the brother of the protagonist of the, of the play. And he has been uh, shipwrecked, and um, pirates have attacked and destroyed his ship. He is lashed to a mast, and he is floating on the sea, on the open sea. And then he says this prayer. Lord, I thank thee for bending me down like this. It sometimes happened that I found thy commands laborious and my will at a loss and jibbing at thy dispensation. But now I could not be bound to thee more closely than I am. And however violently my limbs move, they cannot get one inch away from me. So I really am fastened to the cross, but the cross on which I hang is not fastened to anything else. It drifts on the sea, unquote. Ratzinger comments on this scene, and he says, quote, fashioned to the cross, with the cross fastened to nothing, drifting over the abyss, the situation of the contemporary believer could hardly be more accurately and impressively described. Only a loose plank bobbing over the void seems to hold him up, and it looks as if he must eventually sink only a loose plank connects him to God, though certainly it connects him inescapably. And in the last analysis, he knows that this wood is stronger than the void that seethes beneath him, and that remains nevertheless the really threatening force in his day-to-day -day life." Unquote. In the Paul Claudel play, the Jesuit's brother is an unbeliever, and in this juxtaposition, Ratzinger wants to see a common brotherhood of human experience linking the believer and the unbeliever. Quote, if on the one hand the believer can perfect his faith only on the ocean of nihilism, temptation, and doubt, if he has been assigned the ocean of uncertainty as the only possible site for his faith, on the other, the unbeliever is not to be understood undialectically as a mere man without faith. Just as we have already recognized that the believer does not live immune to doubt, but is always threatened by the plunge into the void, so now we can discern the entangled nature of human destinies and say that the non-believer does not lead a sealed-off, self-sufficient life either. However vigorously he may assert that he is a pure positivist who has long left behind him supernatural temptations and weaknesses and now accepts only what is immediately certain, he will never be free of the secret uncertainty about whether positivism really has the last word. Just as the believer is choked by the salt water of doubt constantly washed into his mouth by the ocean of uncertainty, so the non-believer is troubled by doubts about his unbelief. 
about the real totality of the world he has made up his mind to explain as a self-contained whole. Remember what um, Paul Vanderclay would say about C.S. Lewis talking about the whole show. They think that they know the whole show. I'll go on with the Ratzinger quote. In short, there is no escape from the dilemma of being a man. Anyone who makes up his mind to evade the uncertainty of belief will have to experience the uncertainty of unbelief, which can never finally eliminate for certain the possibility that belief may after all be the truth. At this point, Ratzinger recounts a story told by Martin Buber. In this story, there is an atheist, Buber calls him a son of the Enlightenment, who is delighted to debate various rabbis that um, he can find. He likes to debate the learned men, uh, the learned men in the law and the Torah. So he goes to visit a famous rabbi thinking, well, here's another, here's going to be another feather in my cap. When he reaches the rabbi, he catches him in his room, pacing up and down and reading, very intent on the book in his hand, and obviously deep in thought. And as the unbeliever, the atheist, watches him, he sees the rabbi suddenly stop and say to himself, but perhaps it is true after all. The atheist scholar finds his knees shaking at these words that seem to him to be so terrible. And in their own questioning, they begin to destroy the edifice of his unbelief. The rabbi then turns to him and says, my son, the great scholars of the Torah with whom you have argued wasted their words on you. As you departed, you laughed at them. They were unable to lay God and his kingdom on the table before you, and neither can I but think, my son, perhaps it is true. Ratzinger comments in this way. Here we have, I believe, in however strange a guise, a very precise description of the situation of man confronted with the question of God. No one can lay God and his kingdom on the table before another man. Even the believer cannot do it for himself. But however strongly unbelief may feel justified thereby, it cannot forget the eerie feeling induced by the words, Yet perhaps it is true, unquote. So Ratzinger's conclusion in this first subheading of chapter one, which subheading is entitled Doubt and Belief, Man's Situation Before the Question of God, is this, quote, in other words, both the believer and the unbeliever share each in his own way, doubt and belief if they do not hide from themselves and from the truth of their being. It is the basic pattern of man's destiny only to be allowed to find the finality of his existence in this unceasing rivalry between doubt and belief, temptation and certainty. 
unquote. Now, I think that this first chapter of Joseph Ratzinger's introduction to Christianity is like every conversation that Paul Vanderclay has been having on his channel. We have Christians who are doubting, and we have unbelievers who are doubting their unbelief. So you might ask, do I have any doubt? And I was thinking at first when I asked myself this question, that really I have not ever doubted the existence of God as far as I can remember in my life. However, when I think about what Jordan B. Peterson says about belief, he says that the way you can tell what someone believes is by how they act. And then I have to admit that I have had many times in my life when I have behaved as if I did not believe. And so, what does that say about how firm my belief is? I think you could consider those times to be times when doubt was evidencing itself in my life. I would like to recommend something that I think connects with this, and that is on the Randos channel, uh, Randos United, and I'll put a link to this in the description. There are several of the randos are getting together reading Sickness Unto Death. And when in part four of that reading, Dr. Jim joins the reading group. And there's a section in that video where he talks about whether despair can lead to faith. So if you're interested in this topic of the link between doubt and belief and despair and faith and that kind of thing, you might want to look at that video. I want to talk a little bit about this um, image of the abyss, um, Ratzinger, based on Paul Claudel's play, um, pictures it as kind of a sea, and that's like the sea of chaos, right, that we talk about sometimes when we're thinking about Jordan Peterson's um, imagery. Okay, so I thought about this in connection with this idea of the abyss. The abyss seems to be like a nothing. That's like that sense of nihilism, right? Nothingness. And why do we have such a pervasive sense of this nothingness or this abyss today? I think it has a lot to do with what we have learned about the physical world. So if you go back a long time ago, well, I'm saying a long time ago, maybe like a couple hundred years ago, the world seemed to be made of quite solid stuff. And of course, atoms were posited as, and we thought of them as like, maybe like little tiny um, hard stuff, like maybe little marbles or something. And we learned that they were held together by certain forces, electromagnetic forces. And then we learned that the atoms themselves were actually mostly space, and there were some little subatomic particles. And we still thought of these subatomic particles, like electrons and protons and neutrons. We still had a, a kind of a thinking about them as being like um, little tiny marbles, and you know, with the um, with the electrons orbiting around the 
the nucleus with the protons and neutrons in it. And we think of it, we make little models of it, and it would be like little hard things. We think of it still, even though we knew that there was a lot of space in between the orbit of the electron and the nucleus, we still thought of these things as having certain solidity to them. But in the course of learning this, the world was really becoming a little closer to being made of space and made of like it's made of nothing. And we knew that the forces that held these things together were just tremendous. <coughs> because we could we could break them or we could fuse them, we could release this energy. We used it first the atomic bomb, then the uh, fusion bomb, the hydrogen bomb, and it became more and more evident to us that the tremendous power that was holding these things together. Then we found out more about these subatomic particles that really what they seem to be made of are waves of probability. It's almost like they're made of nothing. <laughs> I mean, what more description could you have of something made of nothing than saying that it's nothing but waves of probability, right? At the same time that we're learning this about the tiny things, we're expanding more and more our ability to see out into outer space. So we're seeing first, you know, our own galaxy farther and farther, star systems within our own galaxy, then we begin to realize that some of these things that we're looking at in, in space that look like stars aren't stars at all. They're actually other galaxies. And then we learn there's billions of these galaxies and every one of them has billions and billions of stars. And so we get this idea of the universe being so vast, but at the same time, we're learning that all of that is just more nothing. <laughs> It's like, um, it's like I told uh, my, my grandkids, I said, you know, if a carpenter makes a chair, he makes a chair out of wood and nails and glue. And then if he walks, if he stops looking at the chair and walks away, what holds the chair together? Well, the nails and glue hold the chair together. But if God made us out of nothing and he stops looking at us and holding us together, what holds us together? Well, nothing. You see, we have a greater and greater sense that we are actually floating on an abyss of nothing. What is holding us together? I think it's so interesting that Joseph Ratzinger would talk about St. Therese, the little flower, in this chapter when he talks about this abyss and floating, the, floating on nothing. Because St. Therese, who's writing now, like in the early part of the 20th century, when we're finding out about all this, nothing that everything is made of with quantum mechanics, she has this prayer that she does where she tells Jesus that she wants to be just like a little toy ball that the baby Jesus plays with. Now, this is interesting because, you know, it's one thing to say, I'm going to give myself over to the providence of God. And when we're thinking providence of God, we may be thinking about our Heavenly Father who orders all things mightily with his great power. We might be thinking about our Lord Jesus Christ 
who is the master of every situation that he confronts in his earthly ministry. But usually we don't think of placing ourselves into the hands of a child. And in fact, St. Therese says that she realizes that when a child plays with a ball, the child may neglect the ball, throw it off somewhere and forget about it for a long period of time, may even damage it because there's a certain randomness of a child playing with the ball. And she imagines herself as being that ball that is being played with by the child Jesus. In other words, she's embracing, it seems, this concept of randomness that we're finding is in the universe. And she's willing to trust in the randomness of God's play, the play of the baby Jesus. Well, Einstein was not very happy about the idea that God played dice with the universe. When quantum mechanics was first being elaborated, he said to Niels Bohr that he thought that God did not play dice with the universe. And sometimes people will quote him to say, look, Einstein said God does not play dice with the universe. God has everything in order. Well, actually, Einstein was wrong in that argument because he was arguing against quantum mechanics. And it turns out that quantum mechanics does seem to very well describe our universe. So that might be a question you think about. Do you trust this randomness that God has put into the universe? Or do you feel like you can't trust it? You're floating upon nothing. Hmm, interesting things for us to think about, isn't it? Okay, look, I am going to be getting back to you soon on the second part of Ratzinger's first chapter to Introduction to Christianity. But before I do that, I'm going to be doing a couple of videos that have to do with masculine and feminine vocations and with feminism and femininity. Because I have been asked by a couple of people to address some of those topics. But I will try to get back as soon as I can to the next part of this chapter one of Ratzinger's Introduction to Christianity. Until we are together again, treat yourself as though you are someone you are responsible for helping because you are responsible and so am I. And together we are making the world. Thanks so much for watching.